Pastor Jared, if you would come on up. And so um, Jared is no stranger to Trinity, but uh, he has been here numerous times. And, um, and Jared, uh, Pastor Jared Nicastro is the teaching pastor at New Monmouth uh, Baptist Church up in Middletown, just about a half hour north of here. And um, he's not only the teaching pastor there, uh, but also a great friend. And so it's a privilege to be able to invite him. And, you know, I say it's also an honor because usually when we have guest speakers, it means that I'm away doing something. And so, well, it's really unique to be able to be here and to be blessed by him. And so if you'd be able to just welcome him and, and give him your attention and uh, see what the Lord has put on his heart to share with us from his word today. So thank you, brother, thank so, so much. much. Thanks for being here. Yep. Awesome. Wow. Wow. I'm so appreciative of the warm welcome, and I, I always get just the best welcome and just always feel so encouraged whenever I come here to Trinity, and uh, I, I've had the privilege of being able to come and speak here uh, several times, and uh, you guys, this church has a special place in my heart um, because Keith and Claudia, uh, I don't have to tell you guys, they are just the absolute best. And they have just been such good friends to me uh, and, and my wife, Erin. And, and even times when uh, I was kind of transitioning, I was like, I don't know if I even want to do this anymore. They were just always like the, just, the, just wonderful, wonderful friends and always encouraging me and praying for me. And, you know, here I still am, Keith. You know what I mean? Still doing it. So it's really a blessing to be with you all this morning and to be able to to open up the Word of God with you all. And if you would, open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 16 this morning. Um, And with it being Labor Day weekend, our focus is now shifting away from the summertime a bit. You know, our hearts are breaking a little bit about that. But that's the first, I've, I've lived uh, pretty much around the Jersey Shore my entire life. That's the first time I've ever heard that phrase, what was it, local, local summer. I like that. I'm all about that. Um, so maybe I'm not as sad as I once was. Um, but we're, we're, we're shifting away from the summertime, and now we're heading back to school. I'm sorry, kids, but it's back to school time. All the parents, they kind of have a, their, their smile's a little bit wider this morning. Um, but uh, our passage this morning, we're going to look at how children are of supreme value to the Lord and how they help bring us closer to our Heavenly Father. And specifically, I'd like to highlight three points with you all this morning from our text. The first one is, is how children point us to the kingdom of God. How children point us to the kingdom of God. Second, children point us to the love of the king of the kingdom, which of course is the Lord Jesus Christ. And then lastly, how children teach us how to enter the kingdom of God. So again, we are in Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. So let's go ahead and read our text in its entirety, and then we will unpack it together verse by verse. So Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16, I'm reading from the the ESV, the English Standard Version. It says, And they were bringing children to him, Jesus, that he might 
touched them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Um, Growing up, my dad used to love to tell this story um, to to me and uh, my brother. And, And he really enjoyed reminding my brother and I how lucky we were to have parents that weren't as strict as his. And one of the stories he loved to tell over and over again was how when he and my aunts were younger, they would have to be completely quiet when my grandmother watched her favorite TV show, her, her favorite, her soap operas. She called them her stories. And they had to be totally quiet. And, and the story went that, that he said that she would sit there in front of the TV holding a wooden spoon. And she would threaten to use it if he and my aunts got too loud. And not only did my dad love to tell this story to me and my brother, but he loved to tell this story in front of my grandmother. And every time he told the story, my grandma, she would deny it, and she would call him a liar, she would scoff at him, and then she would always follow that by giving me and my brother $20 each, every time. And it's one of the reasons why I love that story so much. But my dad would end the story the same way every time. He would imitate my grandmother's voice. And he would point his finger at me and my brother, and he would say, children should be seen and not heard. And of course, he was having fun with us. He loves to tease us. But if we're being serious, it's readily apparent that the marginalization and mistreatment of children has plagued humanity throughout its history. And this was incredibly pronounced in the ancient world and in the first century where our text takes place this morning. And especially we would see this in pagan cultures, how children were not thought of as a blessing, but were viewed as being property or as a commodity. And we read in Scripture how child sacrifice and infanticide was common in certain pagan cults and young children derived their position in society primarily from their relationship to adult males and were victims of gross injustice. And childhood was typically regarded as this unavoidable interim between birth and adulthood, this inconvenience which a boy would reach adulthood at the age of 13. And conditions for young girls were far worse than they were for boys, as sons were valued significantly more than daughters because they ensured the continuance 
of the family name for another generation. And in ancient Rome, children had no rights. They were put to work at a young age and were often abused and mistreated. However, in the Bible, we see a shift take place in attitude and values towards children. We read in Scripture how children are a blessing from God and are to be protected and cherished. We read in Psalm 127, verse 3, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. How valuing children, treating them with respect and compassion was profoundly countercultural in the ancient world. In fact, we can credit the Bible for the positive attitudes we hold towards children today in modern Western society. And the opposite is true as well. Destructive attitudes towards children stem from demonic, pagan, ancient practices. Those that advocate abortion, abuse children, perpetrate child labor. And sadly, we see these unspeakable evils in almost every facet of our society still today. Whether it be in education, or in government, or even most sadly, in the religious world. But the word of God is clear. Those that mistreat and prey upon children will endure God's wrath. Jesus says in Matthew 18, verse 6, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Even though the Old Testament directs the people of God to value, nurture, and protect children, sadly, the the posture and attitudes of of the world, uh, of those that didn't follow God, had begun to supersede those of Scripture on, on the people of Israel. And we see this here in our text in the lives of the disciples, which is evidence here in verse 13, where we read, and they uh, were bringing children to Jesus that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. They rebuked these people, these parents and grandparents that were bringing their children to Jesus to bless. So this brings us to our first point, how children point us towards the kingdom of God. We see that our our passage begins with this just beautiful and touching scene where parents and grandparents, they're they're bringing their infant children to Jesus so that he would pronounce a a blessing on them. And the picture we see here, it's very similar to to what we see today where people may ask their pastor to to pray over their, their children, to say a blessing over them. And as a pastor, I can tell you it is the greatest honor and privilege to be invited to do so. And clearly, we see here from our text how much it means to Jesus. We have the opportunity in this passage to observe the tenderness and the compassion of our loving Savior and how much He cares and loves and values children. However, the disciples decide to overstep their authority. And choose for themselves who is and who is not 
worthy of coming to Jesus. And so this beautiful scene is abruptly cut short by the disciples who callously rebuke those who have brought their children to Jesus for a blessing. The disciples make the executive decision that these children were unworthy of Jesus' time as well as their own. And so why would the disciples think this way? What would would force them to, to act in such a manner? Well, as Jesus tells Peter two chapters earlier, in Mark chapter 8, verse 33, which can be said of all of the disciples, Jesus says, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And just to, to make it really simple, simply put, the disciples, they don't get it. They don't get it yet. They don't understand that Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. That Jesus doesn't value the same things that this fallen world values. And therefore, his attitude is different. See, King Jesus is not like earthly kings. His kingdom does not value what earthly kingdoms value because his kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. Well, what do I mean by that? What do I mean by upside-down kingdom? You see, Jesus is the servant king who came to serve, not to be served. That's different than any other king the world has ever known. In the kingdom of God, Jesus declares the last will be first and the first will be last. In the kingdom of God, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. In the kingdom of God, we don't use power to leverage our self-interest, but instead we leverage our power and influence to serve others. We give it away. In the kingdom of God, whatever you do for the least of these, those that are marginalized, like children, you are doing in the name of King Jesus. And so we must ask ourselves, are we living for the kingdom of God? Or are we living for the present kingdom, which is ruled by the prince and the power of the air, our adversary, Satan? And it's easy for us to say, well, of course, I'm living for Jesus. But it's so easy, just like the disciples, that as we live our lives in this fallen world, that its values, they creep in and they impress themselves upon us. And we find ourselves agreeing with the, those that are doing the oppressing. So what king and kingdom are we serving? Do our lives reflect kingdom living? Again, we must ask ourselves, what are we teaching to our children? How are we spending our time and our money? Does it reflect the kingdom of God or does it reflect the kingdom 
of this fallen world. When Jesus says to seek first the kingdom of God, can we honestly say, can we honestly say that we are pursuing the kingdom of God with intentionality? That if someone asked your children, what do your parents want most for your life? What would they say? Would they say, well, my parents, what they want most for my life is for me to get good grades, to get a scholarship, to get into a good school, so I can get a good job? Or would they say, what my parents want most for my life is to love God with all of my heart, with all of my soul, with all of my mind, with all of my strength? What would they say? What values, what kingdom are we living for? And we we may even be saying one thing, but what do our actions say? What do our kids see? They're pretty smart. They're pretty intuitive. See, wanting, of course, these aren't two mutually exclusive things, right? We can have both. But wanting our children to experience success is not a bad thing, but it just can't be the main thing if your desire is to seek first the kingdom of God. And so what is the mission of our families? What is the mission of our lives? What kingdom are we serving? Are we like Joshua who boldly proclaimed, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, that when we seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, that all these things will be added to you. Well, what are all these things? The things Jesus is referring to here are the blessings of the kingdom. That in order to know what that is, we must first understand what Jesus means by the kingdom of God. And I love Bible scholar and author William Hendrickson's definition. He writes, the kingdom is the rule of God in heart and life, together with all the blessing that results from this rule. Entering the kingdom means entering life that is everlasting life. And so for a lot of us, when we hear kingdom or kingdom of God, we think of it as a place, right? And, and, and in the translation in English, that's how it kind of comes through. But actually, it's the, the rule or reign of God. It, it, it's, it's a verb. It's an action, right? We're kingdoming. Kingdoming. I'm inventing a word. There we go. But entering the kingdom of God is having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and knowing the blessings of what it is to serve Him. And here in verse 13, the disciples are serving themselves. And so Jesus, He responds to them harshly. We read in verse 14. It says, But when Jesus saw this, He was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to Me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. So this is going to bring us to our second point. Children, point us to the king of the kingdom as the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, this is the only passage 
in the Gospels where Jesus is said to be indignant. The Greek word is agonaktieo, which means to grieve much or arouse anger, specifically implies that you're not keeping your anger just to yourself, right? It's not that stewing, brooding kind of anger. It's the kind of anger that you just can't help it. It's going to come out, right? It's going to leak out. And so Jesus lets his displeasure to be known in this passage. And, And one of the things we find out about a lot of times with our anger or our indignation, it often uncovers what we truly care about, for better or for worse. And it really does reveal what is important to us. And so, let me give you a goofy example. In my house, in the Castro house, we are a proud Italian-American family. And so when a Domino's or Papa John's commercial comes on the television, you could hear my two boys Nicholas and Christopher, at the tender ages of seven and nine years old, loudly voice their indignation from the next room. Because as New Jerseyans and as Italian Americans, we care deeply about good pizza. And we know that Papa John is defaming pizza's good name. However, in Jesus' case, His indignation points to something much more serious, something much more significant, which is how deeply passionate he cares for the well-being of children. And one of the things that is so powerful about this passage is how it displays the incredible disparity between what it is to have a kingdom attitude versus having a worldly attitude. The disciples bar children from coming to Jesus because their mindset is not of the kingdom of God. And so what we see here is that the the disciples, again, they're not quite there yet. They're not quite processing with that kingdom of God mindset. And even when, I don't know if you go into the, the gospel of Mark, and when, when in, in Mark chapter 8, when, when it's revealed to Peter that, that, he, that he sees, that he, he calls Jesus, he reveals that Jesus is the Christ, he is the Son of God, what happens right after that? Do you remember? Jesus tells him, i got to go to the cross. I have to die for the sins of the world. And what does Peter do in response? He rebukes Jesus. He's like, you can't do that. And he's like, Peter. You don't get it, right? The disciples, they don't get it yet. And even in Mark chapter 9, what we see is that, that Jesus has to correct them again because what do they do in Mark chapter 9? They start to argue about who is the greatest among them. Who, who gets to be, you know, first place? Jesus has to rebuke them again. And now Jesus rebukes them yet again here in Mark chapter 10. They're not yet processing with a kingdom of God God mindset. And so what we see here is that Jesus both teaches and models what it means to seek first the kingdom of God. Jesus not only encourages the children to come to him, but he takes it a step further by declaring that the kingdom of God belongs to those that are like children. And Jesus is going to expand on this 
in verse 15 where he says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Which brings us to our third and final point, how children teach us how to enter the kingdom of God. Well, first, let's clarify here what Jesus is not saying. See, often people mischaracterize Jesus' teaching here. That he's somehow saying that to enter the kingdom of God, we need to be pure and innocent like a child. But I feel like the people who say that have never spent any time around children whatsoever. Because if you spent any time with kids, you would know that they're anything but pure and innocent. (laughs) So clearly, this is not what Jesus is speaking to. See, one of the greatest gospel truths is that entrance into the kingdom of God does not depend upon our attributes or our achievements. And we praise God for that because in our sin, we are guilty in every way of being cowardly and deceptive, self-consumed and lacking faith. And children show us how we are to enter the kingdom of God because they teach us what it means to truly come as we are. That that's what God wants from us. He doesn't want us to clean ourselves up and then come to Him. No. Do your children ever clean themselves up and come to you? Never. It's God who does the cleaning up. It's our Heavenly Father. Have you ever seen a toddler after they eat a bowl of ice cream? That's my son when he was... One, that's cake all over. So whether it be cake, whether it be ice cream, whenever they, they just they eat cake or ice cream, whatever it is, they end up being covered in it. It's on their face, it's on their clothes, it's on their, their hands, it's all over them, and then they're just head to toe, and they're all sticky, right? I'm kind of a neat freak, so it really bothers me. They're all sticky, and they're all gross, and, and they need to be cleaned up, but they can't do anything about it, right? And when they get a little older than that, children, they have this thing that they do. I don't, I'm sure that if you've ever had, if you've had kids before, you've been around kids, whatever, kids do this thing when they get really messy and they eat and they have stuff all over them, right? They do this. Do you ever, do you ever have kids, they get their hands real wide like this and they just look at you. They have this like deer in the headlights look, like they're looking at you like, help me. Like, like if you don't help me, if you don't clean me up, I'm going to be this way for the rest of my life. I'm just going to be sticky and covered in cake or ice cream or, or, or whatever it is. And they are. They're just completely helpless. And it's because they are. And that's the way we are to come before God. And God knows this. He knows this. This is how we are to enter the kingdom of God for salvation. We come to God as a hot mess. We're a mess. We're guilty of our sin. And we are helpless to do anything about it. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You hear that, church? Your salvation is not of your own doing. 
It's not what you have done. It's what God has done. It's what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf at the cross. One of the ways children bless us is how they teach us how we are called to approach God. Humbly. Accepting that we are powerless, knowing that we are completely helpless to save ourselves. And so we're called to approach God void of our pride. That that we acknowledge that we are without merit. That we have nothing to offer but the mess that is ourselves. And you know what? Receiving the kingdom of God, it's receiving it as a gift. That's what Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says. It says, right? It says, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and it's not your own doing, it is the gift of God. It's a gift. And there is no one, no one better on the planet at receiving gifts than children. They know how to do that really well. You see adults at like Christmas time, you get something, and you're like, oh, you know, thanks, all mild-mannered, and kids are like, yeah, this is awesome, this is the best, thank you, thank you, thank you, you know. They get what it is to receive a gift. You'll never get a kid that says, you shouldn't have. <laughs> never happened. But, but, but think about this. If you're a parent, think about the times where you've had to discipline one of your children. One of those times where you, you spend all this time with them, you're walking with them through what they've done wrong, and you're sitting there, you're trying to be patient, trying to hold it together, you know, and not lose it, and then you, maybe you, you, you discipline them by sending them up to their room. So, you know, go up to their room, and so, you know, you're just emotionally spent from the whole, you know, drama of it all, the whole ordeal. And so you, you get through it, and you're like, you know, breather, like they're up in their room, right? Just have a chance to, like, regather myself here. And then just like five minutes later, you'll hear the door of their room creak open. And then you'll hear the footsteps, the little footsteps coming down the stairs. And that's followed with a sheepish voice. Mom? Dad? I haven't had dessert yet. Can I have dessert? Now, as an adult, there is this temptation to become absolutely incredulous by such a request. Like, how could they possibly think that they deserve dessert after what they've just done? After this whole ordeal, everything we've, we've just gone through. And they could be so bold to come before me and ask me for dessert. It makes us want to reply, are you kidding me with that request? Like, are, are, you really, are you really asking me that right now? But isn't that a picture of the grace and goodness that is the gospel? That we don't deserve blessing. We don't deserve anything but God's wrath. That it's outrageous for us to come before God and ask him for anything on the basis of merit after how our sin has marred his perfect creation and tarnished his holy name. Yet that is what makes grace so amazing. It's unmerited favor before God. As Romans 5.8 says, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
that that child, the reason why, that after that whole ideal, that it could come down the stairs and it could ask you for dessert after they've done all these things is because they know something about you as, as you being their parent. They know that you love them. And they know that it is your posture to want to bless them, no matter what. That they've spent their whole entire lives with you. And there's, there's one thing they know about mom and dad who loves us, they, that they want to bless and that's what's it's so hard for us to understand to remember about our heavenly father do you get that that no matter what we do no matter how bad it is do you understand that that you're his child and it's his desire that he wants to bless you he wants to bless you you see the good news that's the gospel of jesus christ it's absolutely it's scandalous do you know that that it's a cosmic scandal. In 1 Peter 1.12, Peter writes how when we consider God's plan of redemption for humanity, that, that the angels are confounded by it. Do you realize that? That that's what the Word of God says. That, that, the, one, that, that the angels are getting together and they're looking at this thing. Because the angels have been in God's presence. And they've seen everything we've done. They know all about us too. And they're trying to reconcile these two things. And they're like, wait, like that holy and perfect and creator God, like he's left heaven. He came down, the creator walked amongst the creation. He died for them. And they're trying to put this together like, that's crazy. That's scandalous. Like, how, how in the world could that happen? But that's how good our God is. He is mind-blowingly good. That's his grace. That's what makes it so amazing. Our God is that good. The kingdom of God belongs to those who come to the Lord like children. We come to God with nothing and we gain everything. We're called to come before our Heavenly Father empty-handed, seeking His grace, fully trusting in Him to make everything better, knowing that He will take care of us. And this is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Bible commentator William Lane writes, Unlike adults who do not want anything to be given to them, children are comparatively modest and unspoiled. The kingdom of God belongs to such as these because they receive it as a gift. The ground of Jesus' surprising statement is not to be found in any subjective quality possessed by children, but rather it is in their objective humbleness and in their startling character of the grace of God who wills to give the kingdom of God to those who have no claim upon it. Children get the gospel because they are such, they're so good at receiving gifts. And maybe that's why so many statistics show how the overwhelming majority of people come to faith. They, when they do so, they do so as a child. The Holy Spirit, I believe, is speaking to each and every one of us this morning through God's Word. And He's inviting all of us to come before our Heavenly Father like a child. Our Heavenly Father wants to bless us with the ultimate gift, which is knowing Him. Having a personal relationship with the one true God of the universe.
that we would know the blessing of his kingdom. And one of the most significant things we take away from this passage is that what the Lord is trying to tell us is that it's okay to be not okay. It's okay for us as his children to come to him as we are with everything that's going on with us. He knows it all. Just come. For those of us who, who've had children, there's, we, no matter what goes on, right, our, our kids can do things that frustrate us, make us angry, make us disappointed with them, but they never, ever stop being our kids. We always love them, no matter what. And guess what? That's how God feels about you. The reason why Jesus came is that he knows we're a mess. He knows we're not okay. If we're okay, he wouldn't have had to come. But he knew we were lost in our sin. He knew we were in need of a Savior. And so that's why he left heaven, went to the cross on our behalf, and through his resurrection and by his grace, he offers us the forgiveness of sin and eternal life. That's why the gospel is such good news, and he is such a great God. And so our passage closes with this beautiful picture we see in verse 16. It says, And Jesus took them, the children, in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And in verse 16, we see the result of what it looks like to come before Jesus as a child, trusting in God, receiving his grace, mercy, and seeking his blessing upon our lives. It all ends with residing in his loving embrace. This is what it looks like to have peace, to know that no matter what happens in the end, our Heavenly Father is going to make everything okay. This is the blessing of living under the rule and reign of King Jesus and being adopted into the family of God. And so this morning, we have the wonderful blessing of being able to celebrate communion together as the family of God. That together we can come into God's presence remembering his amazing grace and unparalleled love that is manifested in the gospel. That God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That this is a time where we remember and we give thanks for the cross and we celebrate Jesus' victory over sin and death through the power of his resurrection, that we all have the hope of glory. Looking forward to the day Christ returns to put death to death once and for all, making all things new. Restoring all of creation unto, his, unto himself. And so if you haven't yet made that decision to follow God, to fully trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, what are you waiting for? Your heavenly Father is just waiting to give you that embrace. He doesn't care. He knows that you're all sticky. He knows that you're a mess. It's okay. Receive his gift, his free gift of salvation, and know the love and the embrace of our Savior Jesus.
that like a child, just, become, just come before the Lord and ask him to forgive you of your sin, that you would receive his gift of amazing grace and know the peace and love that only Jesus can offer. And in doing so, Jesus welcomes you into his family. And now we can all celebrate what God has done together around the communion table this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for being faithful even when we are unfaithful. Father, we come before you this morning as a mess. That we are, we fully acknowledge that we come to you not because we deserve your love or we deserve your forgiveness, but it's because you are such a great God. And it's because it is your heart, it is your posture that you want to bless us as your children. That you want to give us all the gifts of the kingdom. That you want us to enjoy your rule and reign in our hearts. And so, Father, if there's anybody here this morning who has not yet surrendered to you, Lord, I pray that they would do so this morning. They would, they would surrender to your perfect love. And I pray for any of us this morning who have wandered, who are struggling, that they would remember your faithfulness. That they would remember that you will never, ever give up on them. And that they would pick up their eyes and fixate them upon you, Lord. And that they would know the everlasting hope that they have in you. So, Father, bless this time together we have to come into your presence as the family of God to celebrate what it is that you have done at the cross and in the power of your resurrection. And so we pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.